So uh, we thought that for the, uh, there's a lot of people here who weren't here two years ago, um, let alone five years ago. And so we wanted to begin this morning. I texted it to you, just so you know. Um, we wanted to begin this morning by kind of giving you guys a little bit of a backdrop about how we wound up here. And so a little bit of story, and I'm hoping that we have time for some questions at the end, just so you know. So if like, there's something that you really want to know, um, just you know, feel free to make a note. Okay, so about five years ago, my wife is on a mailing list of a missionary who's based in Budapest. And he, uh, we, the family, Gina's family, has known him for a long time. And he was talking about how he was hosting this conference uh, called the Refugee Highway Partnership, which has been around for over a decade. Um, the Refugee Highway is basically the path that all refugees who are coming from Central Asia or that region have to walk on in order to get into Europe. Basically, there's two ways to get into Europe as a refugee. There's the refugee highway, which is the ground route, and then there's getting a boat from North Africa and trying to make it across. So that's obviously far more dangerous to try to go however many miles it is. I don't remember the number. Um, it's a lot to go in a dinghy, you know, from North Africa to Spain or to Italy or something like that. And so the highway, they call it, goes through Turkey and Greece, Budapest, or on to Hungary and Croatia and all these kinds of areas. So anyway, so Matt was hosting this conference in Budapest and my wife, um, without telling me, emailed him and said, oh, Bill would love to teach um, at your conference on how to use disciple-making movements to reach refugees, of which I have zero experience. And he said, oh, that sounds great. So, um, so then he invited me and I brought David and we went to Budapest and taught like um, a round, what do they call it, like a breakout. You know, it's one of the seminars you sign up for. And uh, it went well. I mean, we probably had 25 or 30 European pastors and missionaries. And uh, we gave them the general concepts behind what is called disciple-making movements, which is really just simple, reproducible philosophies and tools to empower the priesthood of all believers to kind of speed up the replication process of the gospel, especially in the pioneer world where you can't say, well, go download a podcast, you know, because it's not in Urdu, you know, that kind of idea. And so uh, that was how we met Matt. That was the first time we met Matt. And then about uh, two years ago, a little more than two years ago, two and a half years ago, Matt emailed me and he said, I've been thinking about you and David just how cool you are. And, uh, and he said, I'm doing this trip to Lesbos, Greece, and then Thessaloniki, Greece, to work with refugees. I would like you guys to come. It's kind of like a vision trip. And so I said, um, yeah, all right. Well, actually, I said no for about six weeks. And um, Gene and I kept praying about it. It was in the middle of the summer. It was literally two years ago in July. And... Uh, and so I finally said yes, and um, David, Scotty, and I went, and I'm going to pass it off to David. Why don't you tell them about our experience in Greece two years ago? Um, yeah, so we went, um, we went uh, Bill, Scotty, and I went as a, um, 
as a part of another team who was, you know, interested in, in doing refugee type ministry. And we went to kind of teach that team uh, disciple making movement principles and um, but then also kind of observe just what's happening in this the refugee highway um, that's that yeah that's going through Europe and um, all three of us when we got there were very um, just when the spirit moves it moves and if you've ever experienced something like that where you are so sure that God is moving in this that you have to be a part of it and we didn't know how or what it was going to look like, but we knew that God was moving. And uh, the three of us had just read a book called Spirit Walk. And, um, and one of the things he says in that book is, don't pray, God, what is your will for my life? You pray, God, where are you moving? And let me join you in the work. And, um, and we just saw that God was moving. And what was happening was you were having Muslim refugees coming out of the Middle East from places that we couldn't go to because you can't just show up to Afghanistan and say, let me tell you about Jesus. And but I mean, you we, can, but it's a really short trip. <laughs> it's real short. And, uh, and then, but what we were finding was these, these, these Muslims uh, from the Middle East were coming. They were in Greece. They were traveling for, you know, for weeks and they were having dreams and visions on the road of this man in white or they were you know what was happening was the whole time during their trip someone was giving them water and saying jesus loves you or giving them a blanket jesus loves you because all the humanitarian uh folks that were working in that area were christian organizations like samaritan's purse and so we were finding that we were having these conversations in greece where people were just saying tell me about this man in white or tell me about jesus and it was like wow, this is really easy. We got to be a part of this. And um, so, yeah, so uh, we met with uh, one of the uh, field directors there. His name was Josh. Took us out to a real fancy dinner. And he was like, you guys should, you guys should move here. <laughs> and, uh, and so that kind of began our, our partnership of, uh, of being in Greece. Yeah, so, I mean, when we, two years ago, when we came back from Lesbos, there was maybe like six or 7,000 refugees on the island in a camp designed for, what, 2,000? Mm -hmm. And um, there was, Josh was the only missionary. Um, there was a Greek relief agency called Eurorelief, but they were in the camp. And so when you're in the camp with the UN, you can't share the gospel openly because, you know, you sign all kinds of paperwork and this kind of stuff. So they were basically doing, uh, you know, physical relief work. Um, and so Josh was more or less by himself, and then one Afghan Muslim background believer named Hadi. And so to give you an idea, that year, in the last 12 months of that year, they had um, seen 400 Muslims come to faith and get baptized in one year with one Muslim background believer worker. So, I mean, it was remarkable what God was doing and how he was working and how he's moving. So we came home and just felt this is obvious that we need to do something about it. We've been praying, God, where are you working? How can we join you? And then this gets dropped in our lap. No experience with refugee ministry besides the fact that we're, we taught as experts at this conference. Um, and uh, 
Yeah, and God put it in our lap. And then we just prayed. That was July, two years ago. And over the next few months, we just were asking God, what do you want us to do? Um, I'm not going to lie. It was a challenging summer because um, I was uh, praying and Gina was praying. Gina's parents were praying. We were all praying about whether we were going to move to Greece, right? Whether we were going to we were going to leave Revolve, whether we were going to move. Everybody was praying about it. Some of you guys who were around remember that summer. So then in October, the, most of the elders went. Uh, Breton couldn't go because they had a little one. But most of the elders went to Greece on a vision trip, as, a, as, a, as it were. And we were able to go into the camp just for like two days so they could see the camp. And they were going to participate in some of the ministries that were going on there and these sorts of things. And during that time, the Lord confirmed a few things in the hearts of all of the elders. And one of those things is that we absolutely need to be involved, and we need to figure out how to be involved, and we needed to be involved soon. And one of those other things was that the elders said that I shouldn't move. And so we left Greece, we came home, and the McCumbers decided that they were going to um, go to Greece for a 90-day visa because you don't need to apply for that. If you're going to apply for a one-year, two-year visa, there's all of this prep work. But you can just go for 90 days uh, as a tourist. You want to add, kind of take over that part? Yeah, I mean, they said, they were like, Bill, we don't want you to go, but Dave, David, go for it. Just go. Just go. <laughs> I don't know. So we went, yeah, and and um, and God just put a lot of things in the place, and it was able. We were able to go, and um, yeah, we were really excited to to join in this work. And and again, like our first night in Greece, um, you know, we were working at this uh, this center where they would invite men in to 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 serve them tea, and we would play games, and it was a great time of ministry together. Melissa would work in the kitchen serving tea. My boys would be playing uh, with, the, with the refugee boys, and then I would be making spiritual statements and trying to start conversations with these uh, Afghan men. So it was a great time of our, of our, uh, of our um, families getting to, to serve together, and we were working on you know, uh, having teams come, and, and it really, we really just felt this clarity of this is where we're going to be. Our family was hoping to stay longer. We were hoping to send like a steady rotation of teams from Revolve, and it was like full bore. This is where we were going. And then... What happened <laughs> in March 2020? Anybody remember? <laughs> and then COVID happened. Yep. Um, so, yeah. And so everybody had to go home. The, the islands changed. The camps locked down. And everything since then has dramatically shifted. Now the camps are closed camps. Um, for a long time, the refugees couldn't even leave the camps. Now they're assigned an, a time slot where they can go out for a few hours, once a week or twice a week. So what that means by closed camp was that refugees could come in and out of the camp freely, which allowed us opportunities to share the gospel. Because once you're inside the camp, because of you know the UN and, and all the, the organizations, you can't openly share the gospel as easily as when they would come to the, the tea time center that we, that we were um, volunteering with. So the closed camp just meant we didn't have the access to the people. Right. And so over the last year and a half, uh, I guess year and a half-ish, 
Um, we've been maintaining a contact with our relationships and trying to still foster those friendships and keep a pulse on what's happening. And things are different. Right now, Lesvos had 20,000 people in the camp two years ago, or no, um, a year and a half ago, had 20,000 people. Now it has 4,000 people. The camp is closed. Um, some of the contacts that we made are now in other parts of Europe, Sweden, Germany, uh, Thessaloniki, and other places. Hadi is still working there in Les on Lesvos, though he's married now, and he his work has shifted a lot. There's two um, Afghan Muslim background believer pastors who have now joined the work on Lesvos, who oversee the uh, the Afghan church that has formed over the years, um, even though a lot of times it's transient because they get transferred. And Eurorelief is still working in Moria, or no longer Moria, now it's Karatepe because Moria burned down. But we anticipate within the next six months that camp will also be eliminated and they will continue to remove people from the island, which they've been doing aggressively since April of this year. They've moved 4,000 people off the island since April. So um, we decided not to go to Lesvos at the recommendation of Hadi. Um, he basically said, there's no work for you to do here, brother. You need to be in the camp and uh, your relief won't let you go in the camp for less than a month at a time as a volunteer. And so we wanted to explore new areas where we knew there were refugees, but nobody had any idea if there was work being done. And so we decided to go to the island of Samos, which is the second largest hot spot. That's where the second, the Lesvos has the most refugees. That's where they land. Samos is the second largest. And so we went there. So David, would you kind of compare and contrast Samos to Lesvos? Uh, Samos and Lesvos, yeah, it, they're... Um it would be like the difference of going to Rio Grande versus going to like Cape May. So it's really sweet yeah. for us. Lesvos is, is, is just a little bit more, you know, it's, uh, it's a little more agrarian and it's Samos fish, it's is... like a fishing village. And Samos is much more tourist-driven. And um, so that would be, I mean, do you want to talk about the refugee difference? Yeah. So the first obvious thing that we saw when we, when we got to Samos was... Um, there wasn't this mass of refugees. Um, we drove by the camp. We didn't even see people standing in front of the camp. When we were in Lesvos, it would be, you would be in an area like this down by a harbor, and there would be 40 um, Afghan men with fishing poles, like fishing, and families swimming, and there was just, just people everywhere. You would go into the market, and there would be refugees there. There would be um, you know, kids playing in the parking lot. And when we got to Samos, we didn't see anyone the first day, like no refugees. And it was Which was great because <laughs> everybody was like, how's it going? I was like, well, I'll tell you in a couple of days. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone's like, did you, did you convert all the Muslims? And we're like, <laughs> we haven't seen any, but you'll be the first to know. And um, in the evening, we did find um, a, an area where there was some, some young men playing soccer. But even then, it was maybe 25 or 30 people, not the masses that we uh, were expecting or used to in Lesvos. So I think that would be the biggest contrast. The other thing that we noticed was that, you know, tra tragedies create... It sounds terrible, but you guys understand what I'm trying to say. Tragedies create unique opportunities. 
And so, for example, if there's like a tragedy and there's an earthquake or a typhoon or something like that, immediately it kind of stirs everything up. And then in that period of time, people's hearts are more receptive because they're questioning like, what happened? Like, what's going on? What do I believe? What's true? And all these sorts of things. But eventually, even the most ter terrible situations become normal. I mean, just think about what happened, you know, the first month of COVID versus, you know, now, you know, those kinds of things. Eventually, even things that seem out of sorts become normal. They just become commonplace. And so the refugees, even though they were still living in ISO boxes and shanties and those sorts of things, it w some of them had been in that camp for five years. We met a guy who'd been in that camp for five years, and he just was like down by the harbor with four, you know, $200 fishing poles trying to get some sea bass so he could open up a restaurant. But he still lived in a tent in Samos. And we saw multiple um, Iraqis and Syrians who have more money than the Afghan refugees, who y you would see them like walking down from the camp, and, but they're like spinning like a set of car keys on their finger as they're walking. And so you would, meet, you would meet these refugees who were living in the camp, but they were driving a Beamer. And it was extremely strange. Um, because they obviously, ha they couldn't leave the camp because it would remove them from the asylum queue, but they had families of means. So it was very strange, very different from Lemuria, which was 80% Afghan when we were there. So it was very, it was like the poorest of the poor who were there. Whereas, you know, Syria, before the Syrian war, had the highest number of doctorates per capita in the world. All right? Syria wasn't like, you know, this this little corner, this little dust bowl in the corner of the world. Syria was a legitimate country before the war. And so that was a very strange difference just in terms of people weren't interested in conversation because they were settled. They would be at a cafe having a frappuccino with their friends. You know what I mean? That kind of idea. And so the same way it would be really weird if you guys were eating dinner here and then I came up and I was like, hey, do you know Jesus? Hey, <laughs> I'm with him. The same way that that would be really awkward here, it would be really awkward there as well. So that was a big difference. And um, we, um, so we just continued trying to find ways to engage during the time that we were there, during the week that we were there, finding the rhythms of where people were, of, uh, of what they were doing, how we could participate fishing, next to the men who were fishing um, and then trying to spark start a uh, conversation with them and share spiritual stories with them and and going down where the afghan men were playing soccer and trying to talk with people there and share with people there but by and large it honestly didn't feel a whole lot different than if we were doing that exact same thing here in cape may um, whereas with moria it felt like you were fishing in a bucket it was a very different experience. And so what did we learn? That's kind of the, where this is headed. What did we learn? Because in some ways, this mission trip felt the most like normal life out of any mission trip I've ever been. You know, most mission trips are artificial at best. 
you have these mountaintop experiences because if you go to the Czech Republic, Vladja's been planning your trip for 10 months, right? And then you go and you're like, I got to experience it, right? Um, or when we were in Moria, it was such a unique experience and unique environment, unique situation that it felt artificial. But this felt like if you just decided with your family you're going to go down to Tampa and while you're there, you're going to try to share the gospel and see what happens. And so it was very much like normal life, you know, except instead of being with my wife on a Greek island, I was with David. <laughs> so what did we learn? Why don't you, you want to start, David, or you want me to start? Why don't you start? Oh, sure. So, um, yeah, so what did we learn? Um, you know, when we look at the Discovery Bible study, it's like, what does it teach us about man? What does it teach us about God? So what did we learn about ourselves? Um, one of the things that I learned, and it sounds you know, really strange to say it, was this need for spiritual retreat. Um, going into this trip, because it was very like, we're not really sure what we're doing, but we're, we're going to go. God made a way, and we're going to step forward in obedience. Um, the, the words I just, that kept coming were consistently were prayer and thanksgiving. And it was like, if nothing else comes from this trip, it is going to be a dedicated time of prayer and being in the word. And um, I didn't realize how much that I needed that, this dedicated time of prayer in the word. Because basically, our days were filled with, we'd get up and we'd spend three hours in the word and drink coffee and then go get breakfast and try to make spiritual statements and then, you know, sit by the dock and read a theology book and have discussion waiting for people that we could talk to. So it was just a focused time of being in the word, being in prayer, and just, you know, I felt like my soul needed that. And um, so I think that was one thing that I was kind of surprised that I felt like I, I have a good quiet time every day, but my quiet time is normally... It's what, what do I need to do for today? Who do I need to share this with? And this was a lot of just waiting on the Lord, of just sitting and waiting and going, okay, God, what am I doing here? And I think we need more of that in our quiet time of just waiting and listening to the Lord. And um, I feel like that was something that I learned, that I'm very uh, action-oriented, and I want to know who am I going to share with and what am I going to share um, and then the second thing I learned about myself is I kind of forgotten missional rhythms. Missional rhythms is something we would talk about a lot um, in the past years. And like Bill said, this was a very like kind of normal trip. We'd get up, we'd have breakfast, we'd walk around, we'd have lunch, we'd <laughs> walk around, we'd have dinner. Like that was the extent. And, and then would, walk around. Yeah, because um, Bill booked a hotel that was at the top of like a thousand foot cliff that I had to walk up and I had three heart attacks while I was there, Bill. <laughs> um, a lot of prayer. Um, but that's what our life needs to be here. We need to get up. We need to spend time in the word. Every person we look to, whether it is a waitress or as a coworker, or when you're sitting on the dock fishing, the person next to you, is opportunities for spiritual statements. That was every conversation we had was, how can I get this person to the gospel? And, um, and that isn't mission trip only mindset. And I feel like I kind of got out of that where my, 
or my family, we would deliberately go to the same restaurants, and before we would go in, we would pray. Um, there's a great book that we have available for the church. It's called Family on Mission, and uh, a lot of those things are, you know, it's going to the same restaurants, meeting with the same waitress, um, praying for them, and developing these relationships, and I feel like I was just reminded that we're on mission here, not only when we're in Greece or in the Czech or in Indonesia, um, that every day is, is, is missional, and I need to be spending elongated times in prayer and in the word, and then sharing spiritual statements and the gospel in every conversation. What did I learn? What did I learn about Bill? No, I'm just kidding. Sure. <laughs> It's for another day. You didn't want to crack that can open, did you? <laughs> so um, what did I learn about myself? Well, I, I mean, um, I'm going to be 40 this month, guys. And yeah, that means it's time for a midlife crisis. And I think for those of you who are more mature will understand what I'm, I'm going to say. I think when you look at your life and the doors that open, you expect it at some point in time to make sense. You know, you look back and you say, why did we get invited to Budapest? You know, or you look back and you say, why did we get invited to Lesbos only to have the McCumbers go and have to leave in five weeks? Why did we move to Spain and then leave in a year? There's not always answers. And I think what I'm realizing more and more is that God is in control and that he's, he's, he's doing this. And what that means for me is that there is an honest discouragement that I need to work through. And I know, I think, I said to David, I said, I think some of this trip is good because I think people have a false idea of what it means to be in ministry and what it means to be a pastor. And they kind of put you on a stupid pedestal and they think that, you know, well, if Bill goes in prayers, walk, prayer walks, something's going to happen because he's a pastor. But if I go, nothing's going to happen, right? Um, I think that I was honestly discouraged most of the trip not because we weren't seeing fruit, but because I so desperately want to understand how these threads pull together, and I have no idea. And I have no idea. All I can say is that John 3 says that the wind goes this way and that way, and you don't know where it's coming from or where it's going to. And Jesus says, he doesn't say, we, always, we often misquote it. And we say, oh, and Jesus says, so it is with the Holy Spirit. That's not what he says. Anybody remember what he says? He says, so it is with people born of the Holy Spirit. People. Us. Sometimes God says, go here. Sometimes he says, go there. You go here, you go there. You don't know what you're doing, where it's coming, where it's going to. But we can say emphatically that God opened the door and gave us the positive affirmation to go to Budapest, to go to Lesbos, and even to go here. You know, to go, when I was in Iraq in October, um, and I've had no success following up with those men since I got back. And you say to yourself, what was the point of that? What was the point of that trip? 
Now, I'm sure that everybody in this room who's at least has a few years under their belt understands that sentiment that I'm trying to describe, even if I'm not describing it well. That's amplified by the fact that I'm a textbook, over, I'm a textbook overthinker. Um, and that when one day when our friends were taking all of the people who go to Revolve and lining them up with Star Wars characters, David was Chewbacca, by the way, we decided that I'm C-3PO. So there's that. What that means is that I'm always looking for the reason. I'm always looking for the silver bullet. And I know those things don't exist. I know there's not always a reason. I know there's not a silver bullet. But for some reason, I can't stop trying to look for it. And so what I was reminded of with my own life is what does God require of me? And what God requires of me is to do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. And if you're doing the Everyone Loves, Everyone Loves a Theologian, well, maybe, but if Everyone is a Theologian book that we're doing on Tuesday nights, you'll remember in the Justice chapter when they were talking about the communicable attributes of God that justice doesn't mean social justice. Justice means God doing the right thing, right? And so do justly, love mercy, walk humbly pretty much means pursue holiness, be kind and compassionate and have the appropriate posture of your heart. That's what God requires of me. Um, and he requires that of me, whether we're seeing fruit or not seeing fruit, whether he allows us to go here or there, whatever it might be. And so for me, it was being reminded that, Bill, this is what the Lord God requires of you, and you don't need to understand open doors, shut doors, redirections, all those sorts of things. Um, instead, truth has to govern my emotions. And the other thing that I would want to say that I, I, I learned is, actually, I don't think I learned it. I'm just being kind of honest in my sharing, is that sometimes you just really want like a win. You know, you don't want to have to spiritualize the things you're experiencing. Where it's like, well, me losing my job is actually a blessing in disguise. You know, and we can give those kind of Christian pat answers, but it would also be sweet to like get a promotion, right? <laughs> and I think that as Christians, that can be wearisome when you're like, I know there's a spiritual reason this happened, but I don't know what it was. And so I feel like I need to spiritualize it. And I think just reminding ourselves, it's okay to not get it. It's okay to walk in that because God is good, right? And so, uh, and we look forward to future grace. And so what did we learn about God? Rapid fire. Um, we learned that God is God and we are not. We need to just get back to, uh, and when I say we, I mean myself, hearing and obeying, not overanalyzing, trying to see the bigger picture, trying to have this great, you know, five-year vision or plan, but hearing from the word daily and obeying. And um, yeah, there's a lot more than that, but we're running out of time. So hear and obey. And what I learned about God is that wisdom lit teaches us that God isn't a formula. And when we treat him like a formula, we treat him like a pagan God. 
In other words, if we say, well, I did this, I, I, I'm prayed up, I'm read up, I'm fasted up, I'm bup, 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 bup. Therefore, God's going to do X on this trip. That's treating God like he's Baal or Moloch or Asheroth. That's, God's not a pagan God. You don't put in the quarter and pull the lever and get out a little ducky, right? That's not the way it works. And so to be reminded of those things are important. So I wanted to read this passage. I'm not going to explain it because it's take time, and I want to have a question or two if we have a chance. But this is the passage that resounded with us the most. It's a little weird. But we read this on the plane over, and it became kind of like the theme. It's Ecclesiastes 11. Cast your bread upon the waters, because we were fishing for sunnies. No. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. In other words, help people in diversified ways so that when tragedy befalls you, you'll have friends. Verse three, if the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or the north in the place where it falls, there it lies. This is the important part. He who observes the wind will not sow seed. And he who regards the clouds will not reap. You do not know the way that the spirit comes into the bones in the womb of a woman with child. Likewise, you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning, sow your seed. And in the evening, withhold not your hand. In other words, help people. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. The point is this. We have no idea what God did, but our focus was to sow our seed in the morning, extend our hand in the evening, and then realize at the end of the day, we really don't know how, why, or when God does what he does. And we just rest in that sovereignty. Anybody have questions? Ricky. I mean, David did raise a guy from the dead. <laughs> no, I appreciate that. Ricky's encouraged that we, yeah. Say it for him.
Right. Yeah. Yep. The point is that it's good. We live normal lives, and and that's what God wants. I mean, that's kind of the message of the whole book of Ecclesiastes. And when we think about it, we read the book of Acts, which takes place over how many years? Somebody can shout out a number if they know it. Thirty. And then, and we have these select stories. And maybe we start to think, this is how it should always be, right? Just like always healing fools and baptizing fools and then having a vision. You know what I mean? And maybe sometimes, but most of life is normal. Yep. Thank you, Ricky. Do you want the mic? Yep, faithfulness. Amen. <laughs> it's good. Thank you. Any other questions? <laughs> I, I mean, any question? It's okay. Yeah. We did not have a translator. So the so the question is. Did we have a translator? How did these conversations pan out? Um, we did not have a translator. Um, there was a lot of prayer that happened. And I would say 75% of the conversations we had, people spoke okay, somewhat okay English. We started before we would just, for example, if we're fishing, instead of just being trying to make a spiritual statement, we added a filter beforehand where we would say things like, have you had any luck fishing today? You know, for, I'll give, tell you one story, and then I know we got to. So we're, we're down at this beach uh, in, uh, in town of Irion, and this woman comes down, and she's got um, some octopus, and she hooks it. She, they're tied, like, with a chain, and she hooks it to this brick, yeah, brick with rebar in it, so they're kind of, like, in the salt water, staying fresh until dinner time. And I knew they were octopus, you know what I mean? But I, I said to her, I said, is that, a, is that a squid or octopus or cuttlefish? And she goes, octopus. And I said, why do you keep it in the water? Why don't you like hang it up? And she goes, octopus. <laughs> and I said, all right. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. If she had said, oh yeah, blah, 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 and she explained it, then, in other words, we put in filtrations like that beforehand, and then we would have try to have spiritual conversations. Yeah. And we did have also we had a um, octopus, a gospel translation uh, in Farsi, uh, of like a five-minute video. So if we did meet someone who was Afghan who didn't really speak English very well, we were like, we'll just <laughs> just show the seed, you know. We would just show them the video and just kind of like hold it for them, and and they would you know, roll their eyes. And yeah, then we but. Would, it was like, Call it a day. you know, we were just any opportunity. We were like trying whatever would stick. So, yeah, so we did have that um, uh, as well. 
So, and that was cool because we had we had Scotty back home. He like downloaded the video and put it on my Dropbox and sent it to my phone. And I was like, it was like, it was cool to have Scotty there. It's like, it was like he, a scene at a Mission Impossible. Yeah, he was like the guy on the computer, and he was like sending us the files, and we were in the field, typing cool. with his feet. <laughs> um, Alan, why don't we have Alan's question, the last question? Hope it's a good one. Oh, the same question. All right, so one more question, and then we're done. Come on, I know somebody's got a question because you're gonna come up and ask us afterwards. How many jobs? <laughs> How many yeah, Mark. Right. Yeah, we were trying, we tried to be very much cognizant of that, you know, from the guy who, our landlord was Australian, and so we tried to make conversations with him, though he was like, couldn't get away from us fast enough. He hated us so bad. Like, one time we were talking to him, and he was revving the engine on his bike. He's like, okay, all right. And we were like, we're here on a spiritual retreat. Is there anything yeah. we can pray for you about? He's like, <laughs> like, literally on his moped, pulling away. I was like, oh. God bless you, brother. Anyway. I think a, a logical uh, question, um, Kashi, sorry. That, I think that's the logical How next step. How dare you ask us <laughs> such a question? Um, I think the next question logically is what's next? And um, We're going to pick any place that I want to go. I'm just going to start <laughs> looking for persons of peace there. <laughs> um, if you're watching the news, there's a lot going on in Afghanistan right now, and um, the, they are expecting a big uh, influx of, of refugees moving through Europe again. There's our time. That means it's time to go. So we're just going to kind of continue to see where God moves. We don't have clear. You can mute it. It's all right. We're not going to judge you. Um, it's the speakers. We're getting kicked out, Bill. Awesome. All right. Two Mile is ready to sell crabs. It's okay. Um, so, yeah. So, how can you be praying for us? Thanks, Rachel. You're doing, you're, you're really, you're doing great. <laughs> Wind well, it up. All right. No, but in all seriousness, what you can be doing is praying for wisdom. Um, we want to keep hearing the voice of God, and we want to realize that this isn't like, wow, closed door forever. Um, it could be a different situation in a month. And so um, in Spirit Walk, he talks about how God told Abraham to sacrifice his son. And then we're going to get our kids. God told Abraham to sacrifice his son. And he said how tragic it would be if Abraham just clung to that first word and didn't keep listening when halfway through God redirected him. And so keep listening to the Lord. So let's be praying for that. Let me close us in prayer. Father God, um, yeah, I, uh, I, I like all of the stuff that was shared, and I agree with the words of encouragement, not just because they make me feel better, but because they're true. And we want to keep hearing your voice. And God, we don't understand. We don't understand, just like I said in Ecclesiastes, how the spirit comes to a baby in a mother's womb. We don't get it. And we try to explain it, but we don't understand it. And we don't know how you work. We just know that you work. And we know that you use us, even though we're broken vessels. And so, Lord, I just pray that you'd help us to keep on hearing. Help us to, to remember what you require of us. 
And so, Lord, we cling to that. Help us to be faithful, to just hear and obey, to trust you and obey. In your name, amen.